It's an auspicious day. It is the birthday of uh, Ma Sharada Devi. So in the morning we had a puja, and the evening we had the Gita class. Last time we were on verse number 29. It's a strange verse because the word strange comes many times there. <laughs> Now, uh, the verse was Ascharyavat Pashyati Kaschidenam, Ascharyavat Vadati Tathaiva Chanya, Ascharyavat Chainam Anya Shrinoti, Shritvapienam Vedana Chaiva Kaschit. So, wonder, strange or a wonder. One sees the Atman, the true self, as a wonder. Some see, speak of it as a wonder. Others think of it as a wonder. And others, even after listening and you know, getting clarity, all of that, they still don't get it. Still, they don't get enlightened. It's, it's still a mystery to them. So it's strange, a mystery, a wonder. Why? Last time we had started this discussion. So I will uh, quickly summarize what we did last time and then go, go on ahead. Um, first of all, the one who sees this, the first the student qualifications of the student are mentioned. Kaschit. Kaschit means the rare one. So a student is rare, a true student of Vedanta. And why is a student rare? Because of the, uh, the cutoff. Very high SAT scores are required. And so it's like getting into Ivy League. Um, the four, fourfold qualifications. Viveka, Vairagya, Shamadamadi, Shatsampatti, Mumukshutvamcha. Um, the seeing clearly the difference between the eternal and the non-eternal, viveka. Second one, a dispassion for the non-eternal and an aspiration for the eternal. That means a dispassion for worldliness and an aspiration for God-realization, for spirituality. Then third is the six disciplines. Do you remember? Shama, internal calmness, a, a quietness internally. Then Dhamma, a certain amount of control of the uh, senses. Um, I remember once we were studying under a senior monk. We were all novices, brahmacharis. And we used to sit on the floor and study. And so one of my friends, another novice, he was sitting there. And while he was um, studying, you know, he was shaking his leg like this. While he was doing that. And suddenly the monk said, stop that. What's that? Stop it. It's a simple thing, you know, like, but it's, a, it's almost like a nervous trick, a, a tick, but uh, it shows a lack of control. That's a very minor thing, but it extends to many, many things. For example, um, I've told this earlier also, the same teacher, one day we were, oh, we, used, we had to memorize verses of the Gita and tell him every one verse per day. You might think that's easy. Actually, that's reasonable. One of my friends thought, that's too easy. One verse per day, it's too easy. So he, the first day he memorized, I think, 10. And um, then he learned his lesson. The first day it was 10. The next day it was two or three. And the third day it was half a verse. <laughs> so one is sustainable. One day we, we had recited the verses and we were walking back with this monk. It was late in the night. We would walk him to the monk's quarters and then we would go back to our own rooms. So there was this creeper with very fragrant flowers which sort of blossom at night and uh, give out a nice fragrance. As we were passing by, I smelt one of the flowers just like that. We were passing by. Immediately that monk was on me like a tiger. <laughs> what was that? Stop! This is not the sign of a yogi. Uh, he said, just because you get it, do you have to enjoy it? That means you have to experience it. No, no, no. Don't do that. So this is the dhamma, control of the senses. Then um, number three is uparati. Instead of flowing continuously into the world for our enjoyment, withdrawal. Uh, this dependence, this addiction to the world for our enjoyment, going around with a begging bowl to the world. What is the begging bowl? Eyes, I must see nice things. Ears, I must hear nice things. Smell nice things. Taste nice things. Touch nice things. Begging bowl, going around. Collecting arms from the world. Donations. Why? Because we feel we need it for our, our pleasure, for our completion. No, uparati is reversing that. That's a discipline also. Can you, can you do without it? We can actually. 
people get used to the simplest of lives. You may think it's too difficult to lead an austere and simple life, but it's not actually. All of us can get used to it. The human mind, the human psyche is such. At, at first, one might feel deprived. But um, at first, the mind might hanker for it. But if you, if you hold on to it, whatever the addiction, whatever the dependence, it goes away after some time. In most cases. If it's a very strong, I don't know, the drugs and things like that, it might be very difficult. But generally, it goes away. We don't need too much. Um, uparati. Then titiksha. Titiksha is uh, a spiritual fortitude. You remember? The spiritual toughness. No matter how cold and cloudy and rainy the day is, I will go to the Gita class. So that kind of toughness um, to attain one's purpose, to hold on to spiritual practice in spite of obstacles. Then what else is there? Samadhana, a settledness. Um, there is a kind of restlessness in the world, doing this and that, continuous busyness. People become uh, workaholics. Or if not workaholics, uh, at least distracted in the world, continuously, and these days with the modern digital technology, continuously on the screen. No. Focus. Settle down in spiritual life. Even in spiritual life, people are distracted. W what happened? Oh, Swami, I'm studying Vedanta very nicely, very good. Next. Um, Vedanta, no, no, I'm not studying that. Now I'm studying Tantra. Tantra I'm studying very nicely. Why? I saw another lecture on YouTube. It's a supermarket of spirituality. In a supermarket, if you get distracted, you can keep on uh, window shopping. That's the kind of supermarket. And especially these days it happens. But uh, earlier also. I'll give you one particular example. See, in the Himalayas I found people, especially a number of um, young Western people, backpackers, what are they doing? Some are there for adventure, that's all right. But some are there, they are guru hunting. Hunting for the, for the right guru, you know, the enlightened master, the perfect master, so that I want to be spiritual. So I'm hunting for my guru. And I'm going from guru to guru, ashram to ashram, this place and that place. Now, it's often it's done very in a, in a very genuine, uh, innocent, sincere manner. But people don't catch the, the trick that the mind plays on them. What is the trick? The mind, you see when I'm, I'm guru hunting, you can go on looking for a teacher, but after five years, 10 years, 15 years, you're still hunting for a guru, ask yourself this, isn't it saying that all the teachers I've met, none of them are quite good enough to be my guru? It's a trick of the mind. It's an arrogance of the mind. If you, Sri Ramakrishna puts it this way, if a person is really thirsty, really thirsty, even in water in, in a pool covered by scum or something, you know, he'll just sweep the thing aside and try to get uh, clean water underneath and drink that because really thirsty. Won't bother so much. But not really thirsty, then it must be Swiss alpine water. And So just like that, you really want spirituality to start somewhere. Why did I say that? Samadhana, settledness. Yes, it doesn't mean you'll settle for the first thing that comes your way. Um, especially these days, so many things are available. So read and whatever seems genuine to you. We are so clever when it comes to the world outside. We check and double check and compare notes. When it comes to spiritual life, many people are babies. A little show on the outside, a little demonstration of some psychic power, often fraudulent sometimes, um, and people get sucked into it, to their grief, ultimately. Always, see, morals, character, is a very good indicator. What, how spiritual a person is very difficult for us to understand. But externally, at least, we'll come to that. What are the things to look for? So, samadhana, settledness. What else is a discipline? Shraddha. A working faith. That what they are teaching, there is something in this. It's not a blind faith. It's not a, uh, I have to believe it. Not like that. 
just that maybe I don't get it yet. Maybe I don't understand it yet, but there is something to this. Let me investigate it further. That's good enough. Shraddha. The opposite shouldn't be there. That uh, I'm, I'm here just to disprove what this guy is saying. <laughs> They're all wrong. The books are full of lies and the teachers know nothing. And I'm going to show them. In that way, you're not going to learn anything at all. Neither in spiritual life nor in a, in a university or college. Nowhere. Basic Shraddha is required to learn anything, anywhere. Now, the fourth characteristic is Mumukshutvam, an intense desire to be free. Sri Ramakrishna used to call it Vyakulata, a great eagerness, a spiritual restlessness, a divine discontent. Now, this you might say it's a tall order to have all of these. To have all of these and lots of them, it's a, I mean, in great quantities, it's, it's a tall order. But to some extent, we have it because we are here. We are coming to the class again and again, putting, on, putting up with great difficulties. We stick to our meditation practice. We stick to our, um, um, you know, our rituals. We have a certain amount of discipline. So this is a rare person. The story of the disciple, you know, the, the, the person who went to an ashram and asked, who stays here? Well, the guru and his disciples. So this person asked... Um, what does the uh, disciple have to do? Oh, the disciple has to get up really early in the morning and go uh, and, and clean the temple and cut firewood and um, cook food and, and attend classes and pass examinations uh, and so on and so forth and serve the guru. It's a busy day for the disciple. So, oh, I see. And the guru, what does he have to do? Oh, nothing much. Give a few talks, classes and that's it. Then this man said, oh, then I'll be a guru. I'll, uh, <laughs> I like that job description. The moral of the story is it's difficult to find a real disciple. <laughs> so that he says, Krashchit, the rare one, the rare one. Um, even that rare one sees the Atman. What is the Atman? What is the true self? Not what we consider it to be. All these we discussed last time. I'm going fast now. What is the self? He says, Enam. Enam means this one. This one means the self. So what is the self? Not what we think it to be. Not what we think ourselves to be. What do we think ourselves to be? The three bodies. We think ourselves to be this physical body. Not this. You are not really this body. We think ourselves to be the mental body, the subtle body. What is the subtle body? Look inside, you will immediately find it. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, desires, perceptions. Uh, that, the whole thing, that is the subtle body. But you are not that either. The Atman, the real self, is not that either. Beyond that is something called the causal body. We will not go into that, but that's also not us. The true self is the witness consciousness beyond the three bodies. Uh, neither the physical body, nor the subtle body, nor the causal body. In Sanskrit, Deha Traya Vilakshana Atma. This self is a wonder. It is seen to be a wonder. Why is it a wonder? It is unique. It is unique. It is different from everything else that we know. We discussed this last time. Why is it different from everything else that we know? Because it's not an object. It's not something one can see, hear, smell, taste, touch. It's not an object for the five senses. It's not an, something that you can conceive of, speak of. It's not an object. Everything that we know in the universe is an object. Everything that we do not know, that's also an object. But this self, it's not an object. Therefore, it's a wonder. It's a mystery. It's the only thing which is not an object. What's the only thing that's not an object? You should protest here. Swami, aren't there many subjects? Why are you saying only thing? Here there are 70, 80 subjects. Why only one you are saying? Look at your own experience. Your own experience, each of us, we are experiencing the world as subject and object. You are the subject and everything else is an object. Can you find any other subject in your experience except yourself? Can you find in your experience any other subject except yourself? Why? What about the person sitting next to you? They'll look at you annoyed. Yes. What you are seeing as the next person, you're seeing the body. You're seeing the behavior. You're hearing their speech. If you are a telepath... You could even read their minds. Even all of that would be object. Even the mind would be an object. 
the consciousness of that person, the self, that is never an object to you. So the self is not an object. Therefore, it's a wonder. We said last time it is the drashta, not a drishya, the seer, not the seen. And anyway, so that's one thing that we saw last time. Another thing was Ascharyavad Vadati Tathi Vachanya. And the another one, another one means the teacher, the speaker. The speaker speaks of the self as a wonder. What is meant here? Again, we saw last time. Since it is not expressible by words, and the teacher has to use words, Gita is words, Upanishads are words, I'm using words, and yet the subject, the very subject matter, that's a happy coincidence, the subject matter is the subject. The subject is the subject matter, and according to Vedanta, it is beyond words. Ineffable, cannot be described by language. If you ask, why can it not be described by language? Very briefly, um, you can find this in different places in Vedanta literature. In Shankaracharya's commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad 7th mantra, where he comments on the term Abhyapadeshyam, cannot be named. The Turiya, the Atman, pure consciousness, what you really are, a word cannot be applied to it. Why not? And there Shankaracharya explains, why not? You have to go into the philosophy of language. Um, there, it is said, how does language operate? In order to learn how something works, it's an uh, interesting principle, in order to learn some, how something works, you should see how, when it fails, when it breaks down, then you will get an, get an inkling. If, if you study why it broke down, you'll get an understanding of how it works. So, where I read this was, there was a book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Memory. There's a book. It's a book on psychology and neuroscience. Seven Deadly Sins of Memory. How memory fails. If you study that, the different cases in which memory fails, it gives you a very good understanding into how memory works, actually. Anyway, that was an interesting book. But here also, how language fails. To understand that, we have to see how language works. Language works when there are these five characteristics. Any one of them is present, five, five factors. I'm just telling you what Shankaracharya has said there. Five factors. Class, quality, um, action, relationship, and convention. Uh, these are approximate English translations of Jati, Guna, Kriya, Sambandha, Rudi. What does it mean? You can use language if there is a class, that means a set. The example he uses is, this is a cow. There's a class of animals called cows, and here is an individual which can be fit in that class, because certain shared properties are there. So you are able to apply the word cow to this, uh, this animal because it belongs to a set, a class. But you can't do it for Brahman or Atman. There is no class of Brahman or Atman. There's only one. So it doesn't belong to a particular class. There is no common characteristics by which you can identify. Class will not work here. Or by class I mean set, uh, species. Um, so that will not work. The second one is, the second factor for using language is uh, quality. So red flower, um, green leaf, so, or tall man. Um, so these are qualities. By the characteristics, tall, red, green, you are able to identify a particular object and language worked. Give me one of the red flowers. So there are flowers here. Give me one of the red flowers. You understand immediately what I mean. You can go and pick out a, a flower and give it to me. How did you understand me? How did language work? Because of quality. The red distinguished it from all other co colors. So it works like that. Any kind of quality. Can you apply it to Brahman? Atman, Brahm, um, Turiya, no. Because no quality, nirguna, beyond attributes. There's no qualities in it. Then third way of using language is action. Would the driver of the, uh, person, uh, the car which is parked outside please remove the vehicle? So if the person, suppose such an announcement is there. The person who's parked it immediately says, okay, it's my vehicle. How did language work? Because it indicated a function, an action, driver. 
this this dish is so well prepared. Who is the cook? Immediately somebody says, oh, I'm the cook or he or she is the cook. How did we, how did language work then? How did people understand? Because of a function. Can you do that to Atman? Can you indicate it by its function? No. Why not? Actionless. Nishkriyam. It's beyond function. It, it, it does not have any function at all. It does not do anything in that sense. This is another way of using language. Someone, the relationship. Speaker. You immediately know. This is a speaker. How is this a speaker? Because you are the audience. I'm speaking to an audience. Or even better, if you say father or mother, because there's a son or daughter, therefore there's a father or mother. There's a teacher. Because there's a pupil, there's a teacher. This is a relationship. That will not work for Atman or Brahman. Why? Because relationship requires at least two. Mm. Relationship is a, uh, it requires at least two terms. Uh, in Sanskrit they say Dvinishtha Sambandha. In, relationship requires two terms. Atman is only one. With what will it have a relationship? There's nothing else except, except Brahman. Then the last option to use language, since these have failed, the last option to use language is it's actually a very interesting subject, philosophy of language. Well, some, some people might be like, get on with it. Back to Vedanta, this is boring. No, it's actually very interesting. Uh, it's a big, big uh, branch of uh, philosophy. In fact, at one time in 20th century, English, uh, the philosophy that was being done in England became dominated by the philosophy of language. Like Austin and... Uh, um, Wittgenstein and, uh, and there are a number of others even Bertrand Russell did some philosophy of language so a number of uh, brilliant philosophers and they almost reduced philosophy to a language game that philosophy basically is philosophy of language but anyway so last possibility is how do you use language? convention the Sanskrit is rudi convention means I name this boy Krishna so this boy will now be called Krishna. For what reason, if you ask? Is it a class? Is it a quality? Is it a, a relationship? Is it an action? No, 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 no. We just name. Just a name is given. We do that often. We give a city a name, a river a name, a person a name. We give a name to things. And how does that work? We just give it. And from now on. So can't we do that for Atman or Brahman? It's called Atman. It's called Brahman. We have named it. So language worked. No, it doesn't work. Why? In order to name something, assign a word to something, what must you do? You must point it out. This boy is Christian. Immediately your question will be, which boy? Isn't it? If I don't point it out, then has it worked? This linguistic exercise of naming somebody Christian, did it work? It did not work. Because I have not been able to point it out. Now, if you want to name Atman or Brahman or Turiya, can you point it out? You can't. You can't. If you cannot point it out, then you cannot use a term by convention, by Rudi. It will fail. Because, suppose right now, if it had worked, and I say, this is Atman or Brahman or Turiyam, the true self, pure consciousness, absolute being, I'm using these terms. And if it had really worked, we would have all understood, been enlightened. It should have been as simple as, here is a white rose. Here is a white rose. Immediately you see, you understand my meaning, you also know what I mean, done. But when I say, you are not the body, not the mind, not the um, uh, intellect and so on, those things you understand, because body, mind, intellect is understood. You are the pure consciousness. You should say, wait a minute, I didn't understand that. <laughs> because that has not been pointed out. So it doesn't work that way. Language fails. And all of this which I <laughs> spent so much time trying to summarize. This is summary actually. <laughs> and Shankaracharya uses half a sentence. Language fails. Words cannot be used. He says why? Shabda pravritti nimitta rahitatvat. Because the, the, the instigators of linguistic usage are absent. That's the phrase. The instigators or catalysts, let's say. The catalysts of linguistic usage. Shabda pravritti nimitta rahitattvat. Or shabda pravritti hetu nimitta rahitattvat. Whichever way you want to put it. 
abhyapadeshyam unnameable therefore it is ashcharya it is it is a wonder then how if it is something unnameable how does the teacher manage to teach it so that is also part of the wonder how the upanishads and the gita and all they finally manage to teach that which cannot be expressed in words one way maunam vyakhyanam one way is of course silence that is the the loftiest grandest way but that silence is in shankaracharya and dakshinamurti stotra he says the guru teaches in silence and the doubts of the disciples are dispelled ramana maharshi used to do that we have heard so many times we have read in accounts people would go and sit in the place where ramana maharshi was med- meditating he would sit quietly they would go there with their questions and then they would come away with the doubts somehow resolved or at least the questions would be res- dissolved uh, not answered but dissolved not resolved but dissolved that's a very lofty way of doing it but it works only when teacher and student are equally they are in very much in tune and very advanced if i were to use that method one day you might come i might stand here staring at you and you might stare back at me and you say oh he's very profound <laughs> but the second day or third or fourth day you would say okay i've got other things to do i know what he's going to do so <laughs> it's if i use lots of words you will say oh, no i have to go again because uh, now he will use many more new words those i have to listen to and write down i'm actually saying the same thing so silence is one way but that is not a practical way for most teaching teaching situations so what is the what are the other ways vedanta uses is very interesting how vedanta circumvents works around the problem of um, inexpressibility of brahman how does it do that one way is you know it actually neti neti if you cannot say what it is then what can you do you can at least say what it is not you can at least say what it is not that's what the upanishad de- does you know um when we say uh, when we use uh, words like uh, when we use techniques like panchakosha viveka the method of analysis of the five sheets of the human personality the way it's normally presented is not the correct way the normally the way to start is we have five dimensions to our personality physical body annamaya kosha the vital body pranamaya kosha mental body manomaya kosha the intellect vigyanamaya kosha and the um, the causal body the uh, anandamaya kosha and beyond that is the atma you many of you are nodding because you have heard this but this is not the way it should be taught uh, the taittiriya upanishad does not do that the source for this technique is taittiriya upanishad what the original source does is it follows the method of neti neti it shows you what the physical body is and convinces you you are not the physical body then it points out the the pranic body you know right now <sighs> breathing energy health sickness hunger thirst satiety these are all prana observed phenomena you can observe it yourself and you, it shows you that you are not that and then it shows you the mental body points it out and it shows you that you are not that and then it goes to the intellect vigyanamaya and shows you that you are not that and then beyond that anandamaya and you are not that and then it keeps silent it doesn't say uh, beyond that is the atma then otherwise you will quickly think that there is some atma okay i i will um, uh, grasp it it's still objectify it yes Yeah, there's a huge discussion there. <laughs> the Ananda Maya Dikaranam in Brahma Sutras. So, if you stop with Ananda Maya Kosha, you will end up with something like Vishishta Advaita, Advaita Vedanta. You see, actually, Shankara's commentary. He does two things. He stops with the Ananda. This is te- fairly technical. He stops with Ananda Maya Kosha and gives a full commentary on that, and then he reverses it. He says, the in reality. the self is not even the anandamaya kosha he uses that thing brahma puchyam pratishtha that 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 uh, um, term is there so brahman is the substratum of the anandamaya being the substratum it has to be different from the anandamaya and there is a lot of discussion there um, i mean it's pages of pages of commentary there because 
everybody wants to hold on to hold him to that because the Upanishad doesn't say anything else. But you, um, so that's there. But one thing you'll notice the Upanishad itself does. If Brahman is going to talk about Brahman or Atman, that's what it, it was said that I'm going to tell you about the Atman, which is Brahman. And then if you say it stops with Anandamaya, if it stops with the Anandamaya, then the next line after that, Asad Brahmaiti Vedachet, Asanevasabhavati. The next line then does not make sense. What is the next line? The next line says, that now if you think that Brahman does not exist, then you will not exist. If Anandamaya is supposed to be Brahman, and the teacher says Anandamaya is Brahman, then people should be satisfied there. Okay, we have understood it. Why would anybody raise a doubt Brahman does not exist? That is possible only if you go to Anandamaya, deny that you are the Anandamaya, and then don't say anything more. Then the immediate thing that will come is, there is no Brahman then. Everything that I thought myself to be, this Brahman means the self. Everything that I saw, thought myself to be, I have denied it. Panchadashi in the fourth, third chapter of Panchadashi, he makes it clear. He uses this, he gives it this way. He says, everything that I thought was the Atman has been denied. I understand. I am none of the five sheaths. Now, then, the, what is the Atman? There is no Atman. Yet I do exist. I can't deny that I exist. Then what am I? then you're supposed to catch it intuitively. Because then it cannot be pointed out any further. This whole denial of neti, neti, neti of the five sheets is a pointing out. I have negated whatever you thought you were. And you have agreed. So you are not what you thought you were. And you do exist. It's not that you don't exist. You do exist. Because that doubt comes. Then it's not there. It's not there means you are not there. How can you say you are not there? You are saying it. So you are there. And yet it's, you are not what you thought you were. Then what are you? And there an answer is not expected. If you intuitively get it, and they say that your face will shine with the knowledge that I am Brahman, and that realization will come. You're supposed to light up with that knowledge. Shankaracharya uses this in other places. Aitariya Upanishad Bhashya, he tells a story. Same, neti neti. How, to, how does he illustrate it? He says a man was scolded by his guru. Amanushyatvam. You're not a human being. You're not, you're subhuman. You're, you're, um, you're not, uh, you're subhuman. You're, you're not a human being. He felt very sad and depressed and was sitting there. And another person walks past and he says, Why are you so depressed, my friend? Oh, my guru um, scolded me. He said, you are subhuman, amanushya, not human. Literally, it means not human. I'm not saying inhuman because that means something else in English again. Uh, so not human. So I'm sad. Then this person says, look, what is not human? <coughs> rocks, rocks are not human. Yes. So are you a rock? No. Then the insects are not human. Yes. Are you an insect? No. The snakes are not human. Are you a snake? No. All of these are not human. You said you are not human. right? Your guru has told you and you believe it. And you are feeling bad. So a snake is, you are not a, a snake which is not human. Uh, birds, <coughs> birds are not human. So are you a bird? No. Animals are not human. Are you an animal? Any kind of animal? No. So you have exhausted all the not human. Tell me in the list of not human things. And all of them, you are, you are, I'm showing you that you are not any of them. Okay? So not human, these are the not human, neti, neti, none of them. You wiped out the board. Then Shankaracharya says, after this, if that man says, Oh, I understand. I'm not not human. But then what am I? He says, Shankaracharya says, nobody can help you there. <laughs> because in the case of human, you can at least tell. You are a human. But what he means is about the Atman. You can't tell that. That has to be caught. In the case of human being, you might say that the, the friend could have directly said that, look, if you are not a not human, if you are not A, not A is there, A is there. They are mutually exclusive and they, they cover the entire universe. There is nothing else possible beyond A and not A. So if you are not not A, you must be A. If you are not not human, you must be human. That's easy to say in this example. 
But for the Atman, when you deny everything that you thought yourself to be, that what is left over. So that's one method of working around the problem of inexpressibility. It's called the via negativa in Latin. Apophatic method by saying, not this, not this. Uh, what else is there? Um, there are other ways also. There's something called lakshana, implied meaning. I'm not going into that. There is a vast area. <laughs> so those who have studied Vedanta Sara and all, you will know that uh, lakshana, implied meaning is taken. Direct meaning does not work. There's a way of expressing through implied meaning. Another strategy. We've already got three strategies. Remember the first one? What I'm doing now? Silence. <laughs> the second one is neti neti. Not this, not this. Not this, not that. The third one is um, the method of implied meaning. I'm not telling you this now. And then the fourth one is, uh, another strategy is um, the method of paradox. Uh, further than the furthest, nearer than the nearest. Uh, it moves, it moves not. Tadejati, uh, tannejati. Paradoxical language. Not just to so sound cool and profound. It has a very precise meaning. And if you get the meaning, you will understand the paradox and you will be enlightened also at the same time. <laughs> uh, a variety of that is uh, the Zen koans which they use. One school, I think Rinzai Zen or something, one of the Zen schools, they use koans. So you're supposed to meditate. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Meditate on your face before you were born. So like this, there are different... But the purpose of koan in Zen is different and purpose of paradox in Advaita Vedanta is different. Uh, no, purpose is the same, enlightenment, but the methodology is different. In Zen it is meant to short-circuit your intellectual thinking. Just sort of blow you out of the water. I don't know how far it is effective. <laughs> some people get some kind of breakthrough. In Advaita Vedanta you're not supposed to blow you out of the water. In fact, you're supposed to think about it and it will make perfect sense at one point. Alright. And so there are these strategies. So these strategies are used, so therefore it is a wonder for the teacher also, the teacher who is teaching. The teacher is also a wonder. Uh, what are the characteristics of a teacher? Why is the teacher uh, a unique te uh, unique person? Um, Brahmavet, Shrotriyascha, uh, Akamahatascha, Brahmanishta. So Brahmanishta must be established in Brahman. That means the life, the person must be a dedicated spiritual seeker. You might say, no, he has to be enlightened. But how do you know who is enlightened or not? That you cannot really put forward as a qualification. Guru needed, enlightened. <laughs> uh, you, should be, you should watch out for those who apply for that post. <laughs> no. So, but what you can see, is this person, a, is it a part-time um, spiritual teacher or a full-time dedicated to this quest? It's completely about this and nothing else. That is called Brahmanishtha. There's a technical meaning of Brahmanishta also. Anyway. Um, then Shrotriya must be a master of the Vedantic tradition. Let's make it broader. Master of some tradition. We talked about it last time. A tradition is important. Why is it important? There can be discussion about this, but I think we talked about it last time. If you, it's like a seal of quality. A person might say, you're going to buy a computer. There's this Apple store, they call it very... Uh, Nicely, they have named it Big Apple. Hmm? Obviously, because in, in Manhattan. So the Apple store is there on um, Broadway. Now, if you're going to buy a computer there, and there's a guy outside who says, hey, come to me, I'll give you a better computer at a lower price. What computer? It's, it's, I just put it together in my garage. Now, you'll be suspicious. You will be uneasy about it. Why? It's quite possible that he's giving you a better computer. Quite possible. Who knows? But where is the guarantee? If something goes wrong. Where will you? That guy will probably won't, won't be there anymore. <laughs> but you can't find him. But if it's a, a well-known company, you have service centers and you have uh, so many things are there. Backup is there. Support is there. You can it's a resale value is there. So many, so many things are there. Now, similarly, for a tradition by which many people have attained spiritual excellence, those who have attained enlighten, enlightenment. For centuries together, people have followed it. So tradition is very important. Shankaracharya is very harsh. Sarva Shastra Vidopi Asampradaya Vit Murkhava Very harsh statement. 
A person may have studied all the books, but does not belong to an established tradition, should be ignored like a fool. Uh, he means in spiritual matters. Who knows? That person really may be good. But how do you know? So people claim all sorts of things. If it's uh, an established tradition, there are checks and balances within the tradition. There are people at different levels of advancement in the tradition who will know who is at what level and they have a better judgment of that. So you are guaranteed some kind of quality control if you are in any, any tradition. I'm not just saying a non-dualist tradition. All traditions are, are good in their own way. Of course, a tradition means an organized religion. That has problems in itself. So you have to be careful there also. Mm, Shrotriya, well versed in the scriptures, in a tradition. And uh, Akamahata, should not, most important, should not have any desires, worldly desires. So does, does not have any motivation. A teacher has no motivation other than just teaching, giving you that knowledge. If there are other motivations, then it's not an effective teacher. The teacher wants to make a quick bu a buck. Uh, thousand, I, I heard, um, what is it called? Something they've called it. Some advanced yogic uh, enlightenment course or something like that. Uh, $13,000. Crash course. So the, the, the crash is guaranteed. <laughs> now I'm not I'm not criticizing, but but always when a lot of money is involved and involved in in spirituality, it may still be genuine, but it's a question mark. It's it's worth uh, worth being careful about. It should not involve a lot of money. Um, even in ancient times, the Teachers had to run ashramas. We see Yagya Velka going to the king, Janaka, asking for donations. In those days, cows were the wealth. And the emperor is asking, have you come for cows or are you going to discuss about Brahman? And Yagya Velka says both. <laughs> so even then they needed money. There's no doubt about it. But it shouldn't be about money. It shouldn't be about power. Uh, cults, power. So some personality cult. This is something, a big problem in this country. Now it's happening in India also. Personality cult. Advaita Vedanta is first and foremost impersonal. So it's not a question of worshipping a person. It's a question of a knowledge being transmitted. We respect the Guru. We even worship the Guru. But not because he's a person. Because the Guru represents this Vedantic knowledge. That's all. Look at who is, who is respected and worshipped in the Vedantic tradition. Guru, teacher. Why? Because it's a knowledge tradition. Primarily. So desire, even if a person is, suppose a person is very learned, but uh, has a lot of worldly desires, is a good teacher or not? No. I knew this um, Pandit, he's passed away, so I will not tell the name, but he is, he is one of the greatest scholars um, in that particular area. So when I was speaking with him, he was 95 years old. Um, so he's a master of different branches of uh, Sanskrit learning. Vedanta, Nyaya, Sankhya, Vyakarana, which means grammar, grammar and logic and uh, different systems of philosophy, and also astrology. Now in his old age, he has become very fascinated with astrology, Jyotisha. So somebody asked him, sir, you know Vedanta and all of this, you know it so well. So why this fascination with astrology? And he says, he's very honest that way, very simple old man. He says, there is no money in Vedanta. <laughs> no money in Vedanta. <laughs> no, so, so all that learning, uh, well, all, he really does know the subject, but see, still, money is important. And he confided in somebody whom I know that he, feel, he felt delighted because he he's also a exp real expert in astrology. He was flown from Calcutta to Mumbai by India's greatest movie star, uh, Amitabh Bachchan to consult on the marriage of his son and Aishwarya Rai. And so, so he was flown by plane to, just for a con consultation. And he tells that proudly. Now see, he feels the, the, you know, the, it's glamorous. But if you are a Vedanta teacher, it should not matter to you. You should not be interested in such things. You shouldn't even remember such things. So uh, that's the thing. Um, scholarship in itself does not mean that 
one is rid of all spiritual des- uh, all, all worldly desires and a person may be may have gone beyond worldly desires and may not have any apparent scholarship also so that's also there then um let me i spent so much time on this verse let me quickly finish the other two the two more things ascharyavat chainam anya shrinoti so the um the next problem is it's called asambhavana after listening everything is ready guru is ready student is ready after studying this one has a doubt there are two kinds of doubts one is called asambhavana impossibility the other one is called viparita bhavana contrary tendencies so what is asambhavana i have heard you and i sort of get what you are trying to say but it's not real it's not true it can't be true i am a body and a mind this pure consciousness atman and immortal awareness no 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 so this kind of doubt is there that's why it seems strange this atman to this person who is this person the person who has got asambhavana the doubt of impossibility and all sorts of questions come in this and they can all be resolved what is the medicine does anybody know knowledge yes of course that's asambha no not faith knowledge but what is the particular see i know the system i know the teaching that comes from shravana hearing but i know it but i have many doubts now what comes next manam now you know it so asambhavana the doubt of impossibility is removed by reflection what is your problem tell me the question and here is the answer think about the answer till it makes sense to you there is an answer to every every doubt that the uh, that has been raised against this every doubt i haven't found a single good question yet a good question in the sense or many good questions but in the sense that there's no good answer to it no i haven't found it then um finally there's one more problem which is why again it is said shutvapienam vedana chaiva kashchit and there is another one who at the end after everything is done i have he's got the qualification and the uh, teacher has taught properly and this person has learned the system and has got conviction now clarity no more doubts and yet the problem is it's not a living reality i don't feel that i am the atman i can't behave like that and my uh, the world worldly problems are continuing so that is called viparita bhavana contrary tendencies knows and understands that he is the atman he or she but behaves like a body mind complex so that is overcome by what can you tell me nididhyasana uh, that is ved- vedantic meditation so i'll just go on uh, this verse why the atman is a wonder so the whole verse was about this if you ask where did you get all this it's like teaching all of vedanta with using one verse i got it from uh, the commentary by ramsuk das ji has a hindi commentary the swami lived in swargashram um rishikesh he lived for to up to the age of 104 very austere swami his last statement before he died was never celebrate my birthday never worship me keep no reminiscences no sign of my existence what was taught the gita the vedanta that is that is what i have given you stay with that forget me completely so imagine the kind of dispassion that has to be there um then 30th verse all right so krishna is wrapping up the teaching what teaching the core teaching of vedanta you are brahman that teaching is wrapping it up now 30th verse dehi nityam avadhoyam dehi nityam avadhoyam dehe sarvasya bharatam dehe sarvasya bharatam tasmat sarvani bhutani tasmat sarvani bhutani natvam shochitum arhasi am shochitum arhasi so this embodied self in everyone's body is eternally indestructible no birth no death no change it is existence consciousness bliss that is our real nature so o arjuna krishna says you should not grieve for any creature 
So this sums up the entire teaching. Notice one thing. In all beings, he uses a singular. Dehi, singular. In all. The indweller, in all beings. Instead of saying that in all beings there is a separate Atman, which is indestructible. This one is indestruct indestructible in all beings. Meaning thereby he is pointing out there is one self. Um, we are not separate selves that way. So this meaning of this is clear. It's like a concluding, like a um, placeholder. You know, he's finishing a particular topic. Sometimes the commentators, the Sanskrit commentators, who help us to understand the meanings of the verses. So sometimes they will say, the meaning is clear. So here he says, spashtam. It's clear. One word. One word means <laughs> not even meaning is clear. It just the commentary is clear, <laughs> clear. Then he goes on with the next. <laughs> Sometimes uh, to your fury you will discover a very difficult verse and you look into the commentary and it says clear. <laughs> <laughs> now Sri Krishna changes tracks. He shifts to a different approach. Till now he was teaching Vedanta. Now what he's going to do is for the next few verses, next nine verse, uh, eight verses, yes, eight verses, he is going to appeal to ethics and Arjuna's uh, sense of honor. Ethics and sense of honor. Not so much high philosophy. Something much more practical here. He says, even if you put all the Vedanta aside, still you should do your duty. Why? So in the next few verses, they're pretty simple. 31. Swadharmam apichaveksha. Swadharmam apichaveksha. Navikampito marhasi. Navikampito marhasi. Dharmyadhi yudhyat shreyo. Dharmyadhi yudhyat shreyo. Anyat chatriyasya navidyate. Anyat chatriyasya navidyate. And considering your duty also. You ought not to falter, because there is no greater fortune for a Kshatriya than a righteous battle. So he's now pointing out his duty. He's not talking about uh, Vedanta, about the doctrine of the self anymore. He says, take a look at what your duty is, Swadharma. This word will come up again and again. Mm, let me explain this. Before, yeah, We've got time for that. This word will come up again and again. Swadharma. Literally means your own dharma. Now what does that mean? Dharma is a word that is very wide. If you look at the dictionary, Sanskrit dictionary, you will get a page of meanings. It means morality, it means ethics, it means religion. In India, religions are called dharma. It means property, a quality. This object has such and such dharma. Quality. Um, it means intrinsic nature, dhriyate, that which holds a thing together, your essential nature, dharma. Many, many things. It means, uh, it means the ritualistic actions performed, the yajnas performed in the purva mimamsa, the karmakanda of the Vedas, that is called dharma. It means the merits gained by, by a, merit, a good life, that is called dharma. So, so many meanings are there. The Swadharma is another meaning. Your, it lit, in a very narrow sense, it means your duty. It means your duty. It means your nature. Own duty. Own nature. Swa means own, yours, mine. And Dharma means my Dharma. So look at your Dharma. I'll give you just two meanings of it, what it meant. There's a specific meaning. What, what is my Dharma? What am I supposed to do? The question is, what am I supposed to do? And in ancient India, they had a very nice formula for finding this out. Gives you the answer. It's not relevant anymore for reasons which will become clear. But let's understand what the way they thought about it. So Swadharma, which means it's an answer, your nature or your dharma. It's an answer to the question, what is my dharma? Which includes, what should I do? What should I be in life? How should I deal with this situation? So all of these questions will be answered. What is right for me? What is wrong for me? All of these come from Swadharma. So don't you think it will be a nice thing to know? If I, if I could know my own Dharma, then many questions would be answered. 
So what is my dharma? In ancient India, they had a system called Varnashrama dharma. That means um, the four castes, thousands of subcastes, but overall four castes and four stations of life. What are the four stations of life? Brahmachari, that means student life before one gets married. And when you're preparing for grown-up life, so student life, brahmachari. Then grihastha, the householder life, when one gets married, has children, has a position in society, earns your living, so on and so forth. And then there is a, a vanaprastha, a retired life. Literally, it means forest dweller or forest goer. So um, retired life, vanaprastha. And then finally, sannyasa which is a monastic life, giving up everything, being a monk. These are the four stations in life. And at each stage, you have specific dharma, duties, obligations, things to perform. They'll be different depending upon your stage in life. If you are a student, there are certain things that you are supposed to do and certain things you're not supposed to do. If the same person is a householder, again, the dharma changes and so on. Now, the four castes in society, ancient Indian society, you had the Brahmins who were priests, the educators, the philosophers, um, and so on. And then you had the Kshatriyas who were the warriors, the administrators, and so on. Then you had the Vaishyas who were businessmen, traders, um, then uh, even farmers. Um, then you had the Shudras who were laborers, workers. And there are multiple subcastes and all of that. So each, depending on which caste I belong to, I have a specific set of dharma. So if I ask, what is my dharma? The question will be, which caste do you belong to? Now you have, um, so five components of swadharma. It works like this. Ashrama dharma, varna dharma, varnashrama dharma, um, vishesha dharma, sadharana dharma. So your own duty, your own dharma has five components. You answer these questions like a checklist, fill it up. What is your station in life? A young person, middle-aged person, retired person, so on. Which stage of life are you in? One. Second, um, which caste do you belong to? Now you see why it is not applicable anymore. So society has changed so much. It, the older system does, simply does not apply anymore. Anyway, they would ask which caste you belong to. So that has a particular duty. Then, if you put them together, which caste and which stage of life do you belong to? So for example, I will apply to Arjuna. Uh, which caste did Arjuna belong to? Kshatriya, the warrior caste. Which stage of life did Arjuna belong to? Grihastha. He was a householder, he was married. And um, so what is the Varnashrama Dharma for him? Householder, warrior. You see, what is the duty of a warrior? What is the duty of a householder? What is the duty of a householder warrior? That also has a specific connotation. Then Vishesha Dharma, specific. Specific means there are certain roles that we take on. So you are a teacher or you are the CEO of this company. Or you are the general in the army of the Pandavas. So that's a specific role that has certain duties, obligations for as long as that one lasts. So those are called vishesha, specific. Not for everybody, not even for you before and after that. But as long as you are in that, you have agreed to that role, then you must fulfill that role. So that has certain, certain obligations, duties. And finally, sadharana, the general universal human qualities. Ahimsa, non-violence, that's a general rule. It will be modified if you are a warrior. But the underlying rule is non-violence, so you must not, not unlimited violence. So, uh, non-violence, truth, uh, self-control, these things were universal values. There are five universal values. Put them all together, you get an answer. The formula will give you the answer. What is my dharma? What is my duty? It really won't give you any valid answer today. Because society has changed so much that um, the caste and the station in life doesn't mean much. The people who are in the 70s, 80s, they're still working. Um, people who are in the 20s, retired already. <laughs> yes. Uh, so on. Um, this is one meaning of Swadharma. This is what it meant for them in the ancient India. And then 
there is another meaning which is more applicable now swadharma means swabhavika dharma or swabhavajam dharma that means born of one's own nature that's more difficult to determine it's not so formulaic but it's useful so what is your inner nature what tendencies do you have does a person like music so like to be a musician or an artist or is a person good with people so is been a people person uh, job or is a person um, you know great with numbers or maybe a mathematician things like that there is something some tendencies we have certain qualities and these differ where are these qualities where are, where do they come from they come from something called swabhava swabhava means so there are two words in sanskrit swarupa swabhava this difference must be understood very clearly it's it's significant swarupa and swabhava this how do i translate let me give you the literal literal translation swabhava means own nature swarupa means own real nature not own form or own form but it's not it's not a form your own true nature but does it mean the other nature is false no i'll tell you the distinction the distinction is this swabhava refers to our subtle body the mind your subconscious your genetic potential your the the bundle of samskaras which you have inherited from immemorial past lives so that's the tendency that is different for each one of us our swabhava which is mental we can feel it each of us we can see our own tendencies if you observe ourselves we can see our tendencies in every family each of the kids is different same family same physical uh, you know genetic almost the same genetic inheritance from the parents same nurturing same household but kids are different they come with different swabhava many many lives so we have a swabhava each of us and it's important should not be neglected we neglect it at your own peril and then swarupa swarupa is deeper than swabhava what we truly are what are we truly atman pure consciousness there we are all the same swabhava of each person different swarupa of all of us same the swarupa is same what is swarupa atman brahman satchidanand that's what we are we're trying to realize that that's what we have forgotten or that is occluded hidden from our uh, experience and that's the source of our samsara but swabhava is also very important in this life to be successful in life to be peaceful and happy in life and to be successful in spiritual life you must take into account your own swabhava see even in spiritual life somebody is a dhyani loves meditation is good at it somebody is a gyani his loves philosophical inquiry into vedanta good at it it really feels alive to you somebody is deeply devotional that feels real to you somebody is dynamic wants to do good to others wants to be expressed in service loving service to uh, humanity that feels worthwhile to you why do these these different things feel worthwhile one to one person to the other person it seems mechanical somebody loves being devotional the next person says i don't like this blind belief i can't bring myself to believe in god another person loves hours and hours of quiet meditation and the next person says i can't meditate 2 minutes and then i become restless why swabhava this is the own nature we must understand our own nature our sadhana will be according to that our sadhana spiritual progress will be according to that and our duty in life is also swabhava so there krishna says to arjuna please look at your own swadharma which comes from swabhava this we can apply in our lives even today in the modern world notice our own tendency now we have new ways you know what is that myers briggs test personality test no no there is a validity to it it gives you some idea about yourself you can take the test nowadays it's available online and it gives you an idea about one's own mental makeup so look at your own dharma am navikampitam arasi you should not tremble to do your duty um just one more point and i'm done you will see in the next few verses krishna very intelligently introduces and uses words which arjuna himself has used earlier 
while arjuna was asking questions for example he said in the 29th verse of first chapter I am trembling with grief and sorrow at this terrible thing we are about to do I am trembling Krishna says you ought not to tremble you see he uses the same words you will see again and again whatever Arjuna has asked he is actually answering those questions um, every question that has been put is now being answered one after another uh, so it's a very intelligent thing going on uh, underneath the text, if you watch it. There is no greater good fortune for a Kshatriya than a righteous battle. So, a meaningful life. You've got the opportunity to do something meaningful. It's, it's a very rare opportunity. Take hold of it and do it. And that's for all of us. That's for all of us. I'll end with this. One terminal care nurse... She wrote in Reader's Digest, she said that she met many, many people in her uh, career as a nurse to the, term, the terminally ill, those who are dying. And she said, among those who would talk to her, not all of them were lucid, but among those who would talk to her, one, the major source of regret, one major source of regret was why did I not do it? Why did I not try it? It means something. Somehow life went by. There were other important things to do. But there was a wish to do something. Who knows what? Something for each person different. So, for a, he says, when a time comes to make your life meaningful, take that opportunity. Do something uh, meaningful and worthwhile with your life. So this is a rare opportunity that has come before you. You see, Arjuna's real problem, you know, this battle he's going to f fight. He has a problem with it because he's taking it in a worldly sense. His whole approach to it was, I will take revenge on those evil guys and I will get the kingdom which is rightfully mine. Because it was all centered around his personality and all rightful. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Nothing illegal there, nothing immoral there. But it was still selfish. Because it was around the little self, what happened when he went there, he got a terrible shock that for my own petty gain, I'm going to kill my own relatives. This is no good. I can't do this. But what Krishna is telling him, you are not doing it. Don't do it for your petty gain. It's your duty. You are a warrior. You're supposed to protect society from evildoers. Even if they are your own relatives. So, you are going there not for your own personal gain. It's because your duty, you're doing what you're supposed to do in life. So, do that. Later it will come. Arjuna has asked the question. This is terrible. I don't know which will be better. If we lose this battle or if we win this battle. If we lose this battle, we are finished. Terrible. So, the selfish self suffers because I don't get the kingdom. I can't uh, take revenge on the Kauravas. If we win the battle, he says, it's terrible. I have killed my relatives. But both are very selfish ways of looking at the same problem, you see. And Krishna will tell him, whether you win the battle or lose the battle, both ways you gain. Why? If your point of view is of doing your duty, you lost the battle trying to do the right thing. You won the battle, you've done the right thing. What you're supposed to do, what society wants you to do. The whole thing is a change in perspective. It'll come slowly. Om Shanti 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 Hare Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu